Within the Reading Corner today, I'm welcoming Rob Biddulph. Um, We're going to be talking about something a little bit different because usually if I was talking to Rob, it would be about drawing and picture books. But actually, Rob has now written his first novel and it's called Peanut Jones and the Illustrated City. So first of all, I have to welcome you into the Reading Corner. Rob, thank you for joining us again. Oh, thanks for having me, Nikki. You know, it's nice. It's nice. I feel like we're old friends. It's nice we to be are. Back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I suppose the first question is an obvious one. And what made you want to venture more substantially into the world of writing? It's kind of crept up on me, I guess. Um, but the thing is, I think something that's common to lots of people like me, who I come from an art background. So my uh, you know, my pre- my career previous to this, I was an art director on newspapers and magazines. And um, and so when it comes to the writing side of this job, I've always had that imposter syndrome. I think kind of, you know, this isn't this isn't something I'm qualified to do. I shouldn't be doing this. And I think when with my picture books, uh, I felt like I sort of hid behind the rhyme in a way, because, you know, writing the stories in rhyme, it's like pro- there's a lot of kind of problem solving in there. And I, I, I just felt like I could hide behind that. I think even though I quite fancied writing a longer story, that 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 held me back for a little while. Um, and then it, it happened. I actually wrote this, the first book, the first book of the trilogy. And um, I wrote the first book two years ago, actually. So that's how long it takes the lead time for these books to kind of come out. And I've had this idea in the back of my mind, um, which sprung from the post-it notes that I used to draw for my daughter. For those that don't know, when my youngest daughter started at primary school, she was really nervous about staying for lunch. And so somebody suggested that I draw a little picture on a post-it note and hide it in her lunchbox to give her a little kind of a little hello, you know, at lunchtime from me. So I did it on the first day and then she came home and she loved it. And she said, what are you going to do for me tomorrow? So I did one the next day. And then before I knew it, that was it. I was doing one every day. And in fact, I did one every single day for her while she was at primary school so we did I think I did over 2,000 of these drawings in the end and it was a really do you know what it was a really lovely thing it was a really nice little private um sort of channel of communication between me and my daughter but I I thought I'd always had that as kind of the starting point for my story I sort of thought well what if these little drawings that I did for her would come alive in her packed lunchbox and sort of dance around in her packed lunchbox or what if I did a picture of an apple and she could pick that apple up and eat it um, and then I sort of carried on thinking along those lines and thought, you know, what if I drew a door and she could open the door and go through? What would that be like? And, you know, then I sort of came up with the idea of, an, you know, an entirely illustrated world and yada, yada, yada. And the story, that's how the story kind of came out. So I had a very rough idea of what I wanted to do. And as I say, yeah, this sort of window opened up and I thought, right, let's have a go. And um uh, it's quite similar to the um, thought process behind my draw with Rob videos, actually, because the way that I teach um, kids how to draw my characters is I break it down into little bite-sized pieces. So, you know, I might show a child a picture of, you know, a steam train or something, and they would look at it and think, there's no way I can ever draw that. But then when you break it down into little digestible bite-sized pieces, by the end of the video, they've, they've drawn this beautiful steam train. So I thought, right, I'm going to take a leaf out of my own book and I'll break this story down into the you know three main acts and then I broke those down into chapters and um sort of did little chapter outlines and that that way I each chapter was almost like a little kind of picture book arc mm. and I and I and I that's how I, that's how I tackled it I should just say for listeners that the chapters are very short actually and yeah. hearing you talk about that planning process and almost visualizing them as mini picture books 
And you have got such a captivating way of writing, actually. Um, some of my favourites are with one of the characters. We'll talk about the characters in a moment, but little bit. I mean, I just love the way that she talks, you know, that very first speech that she gives. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I've known five-year-olds like that. It's just wonderful. I love it. So, oh. well, well, it's interesting you said that about the short chapters, because that was a very deliberate thing, actually, on my part, because I was thinking back to my own childhood, and I had a period where I didn't really, I wasn't a big reader. And I think it's because I was, again, I felt slightly daunted by reading these kind of pages and pages of text. So I really wanted short chapters with um, sort of slightly cliffhanger-y endings at the, uh, in every single chapter, just to get those pages turning. And that that combined with, I mean, we should probably say that it's very heavily illustrated too, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's how my, I think that's how my brain works. You know, picture books, you know, the text does one thing and the pictures do another thing, you know, they kind of both tell a story and I and I very much conceived this book in a, in a in the in the same sort of way really. Mm. Tell us a bit. We, you, you've said a bit about the starting point, the post-it notes. What if the you know what if the drawing came to life? Um, I just want to focus on the first part of the story, which is where you set up the characters really. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about those. It's a lovely cast of characters. I think I knew right from the beginning that I wanted a, a female protagonist. Maybe, I think because I'm the father of three girls, um, I've sort of been hyper aware that there's not as many female protagonists in uh, children's books as maybe I, I would like there to be. Um, uh, so I thought, right, it's definitely going to be a, a girl. And the name Peanut Jones, I've had that for a long time. It's uh, my, my wife used to um, used to call all of my children when they were little Peanut. And then in terms of the others, I think as the story unfolded in my head, I knew I wanted there to be three kids who were kind of going to lead us through this this world and this adventure. And Rockwell appeared quite early on. Somebody who didn't quite fit in at school either, because I knew she was going to be going to this school. It's quite, it's quite difficult, actually, to remember the order that everything kind of came in. But I knew she was going to be at a school that she wasn't happy with. And there was going to be another boy at the school who also... Um, wasn't particularly happy but for different reasons so that's how kind of Rockwell appeared and then Little Bit uh, was going to be I think there was a point when Little Bit was going to be a little dog <laughs> and then I thought oh no I want I want there to be a third dynamic in, in this um, relationship and a, a, a kind of a verbal dynamic and then uh, I love Little Bit I think she might be my favourite character because um She's a bit like my youngest daughter, who is, uh, I think maybe because she's the youngest, she's always been um, sort of whip smart with her kind of comebacks in, a, in our kind of quite boisterous family dynamic. So I guess the characters are quite kind of believable. And that's because, you know, you sort of write what you know to a certain extent, don't you? And I, and I, I actually found writing the dialogue came really quite easily because I just imagined what it would be like if it was me and my wife and my friends and my kids and then like I do with my picture books quite early on I started drawing the characters you know once I had the characters I start drawing them that really helps me with the writing of them we should just say that um Peanut and Rockwell spend quite a bit of the book or at least Peanut does insisting that Rockwell isn't her friend but we can tell that he is <laughs> yes yeah yeah she's determined she's at this school that she doesn't like she's been made to go to this school which is a very kind of stem focused school um and she is a very creative 
little girl, you know, and the school that she was at previously was very nurturing towards her creative needs and her love of the arts and that kind of thing. So she finds herself at this school, uh, which is um, it's called St. Hubert's School for the, I'm going to get this wrong now, for the Seriously Scientific and Terminally Mathematic, I think it's called. And uh, she finds herself at this school that she hates. And so she's determined to not make any friends there. She doesn't want to get any kind of enjoyment while she's at this school. She's really really determined about that so when she meets Rockwell who also doesn't really seem to have many friends but is very keen to be they 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 pair together in this kind of study buddy scheme um and I think she likes him she realizes that they're kind of kindred spirits straight away but she's yeah as you said she's she's very reluctant to kind of admit that Mm -hmm. and that 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 set up a nice dynamic at the beginning of the story I think and little bit is her youngest sister who's just five years old um, and she, you've talked about how easily you wrote the dialogue. I mean, I was won over from the first scene with her in where she's asked what she was doing at school that day. And we get this long explanation of, um, you know, that playing in the play corner and why certain things couldn't couldn't be done with the fried eggs and so on. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fantastic bit of uh, situational humour. <laughs> Thank you. That's pretty much straight from the horse's mouth with my youngest daughter. She speaks, you know, when she'll tell you something, it'll be one long sentence and it'll go on for like 10 minutes. So, yeah, that's how I, that's how I kind of wrote it. And also, yeah, at the beginning, I wanted to establish that she was unusually bright. So, yeah, it was a nice way of um, weaving that into the story too. So another way in which you sort of establish characters, you say, is through the drawing. And it's interesting to see characters in their situation. And you've taken some time, actually, to draw Peanut in her bedroom Uh, it has this wonderful quirky kind of perspective looking um, from above at her down on her bed and yet we can magically see everything that's on the walls because of the you know the quirky perspective that's uh, being put on there and I was fascinated by you know the detail all of which seemed to be pertinent to her but also probably was a reflection of you putting in the things that you love I felt uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about what we can see here. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you say, it's an, it's kind of like a top-down view of her lying on her bed in her bedroom. I'm um, looking through um, all these post-it drawings that her dad, who has, we probably should say at this point, her dad has disappeared a year previous to the story starting. And so she's kind of looking through all the post-it notes on the bed and she's got this wooden box full of them and she's opened that. So we can see all the post-it notes. We can see, as you said, all the things, the posters on the wall. We've got um, Van Gogh, the Van Gogh wicker chair painting, and we've got Edvard Munch's The Scream is on the wall. We've got a Beatles poster on the wall because Peanut is a big Beatles nut, just like me. And so lots of kind of art stuff because I think a picture paints a thousand words and it can do a, such a great job of... Um, getting across certain elements of somebody's character that you want to get across. You don't want to get bogged down in that whole, you know, one of the first things that somebody says to me when I started writing this is, you know, show, don't tell, you know, that whole kind of that old mantra when you're writing the book and actually drawing the pictures myself really, really helped me with that because I did find myself every now and then getting bogged down with description, you know, and actually it just really slows the the book down. So it was really nice to be a kind of, able to do that and yeah there's lots of little clues in there as well to things that will be happening in books two and three so I'm hoping again I think that's something that's come from my picture book background you know you 
you put detail in the picture that readers won't necessarily notice the first time they read it or the second time, the third time even, you know, they might notice it's the eighth time because, you know, picture books are read time and time and time again, night after night. But I, I like to think that maybe if somebody has a second read of this book, they might spot things in this illustration that maybe happen later in the story. There's a clock on the wall. The clock, obviously, is. time is an important thing in this story and how time passes or doesn't pass. Yeah. Um, and that clock's quite iconic as well. <laughs> it is. I like to put in my little design classics here and there. It's a George Nelson clock. I actually have one. I think my grandfather was a clockmaker strangely and so uh, I've always had a big thing for for clocks in fact if you look in all my picture books you'll find lots of George Nelson clocks I'm gonna have a look the background. have a look see how many you can find and there's also a self-referential blue penguin in there there is a little penguin blue and there's a there's a little drawing of a Gregosaurus on the desk as well which is a, you know that was my first ever draw with Rob video was Gregosaurus mm-hmm. so yeah there's a few little bits in there for any Rob fans out there who are who are reading who are reading the book? So we've got Peanut here now. She yeah. is sitting on her bed. She's got this special box, and she discovers this is a really important plot point here. She discovers something in this box, a pencil that's magic in more ways than one. It is, and uh, soon after I drew the characters, I drew the pencil. So the, the pen, that drawing of the pencil that appears in the book a couple of pages after the bedroom illustration, I drew that before I wrote most of the story because I really wanted so this pencil is a very old pencil and it's and I wanted it to feel I wanted it to be like almost like a work of art in itself you know like a sculpture so you know it's kind of like it's not even at all it's like it's being whittled hand whittled out of a piece of wood and um you know the lead is like you know Chris Riddell basically you know his mm. pencils whenever you see Chris drawing he has these beautiful pencils because he kind of uses a knife to sharpen them mm. and his pencils are just the loveliest things ever and so I wanted the lead to be a bit like one of Chris Riddell's uh lead so it's a really long substantial lead and a you know nice sort of silver rope tie you know which is um which is attaching the rubber to the other end of the pencil so the whole thing is like a work of art mm. and um and I really wanted to get that across in my description as well so it's a bit like you know Marcel Duchamp or someone like that you know kind of making art out of the ordinary I thought I really wanted to get that message across in the in the discovery of this pencil which then turns out to be as you say the central object in the whole story really because peanut soon discovers that whatever she draws with this pencil it comes to life she draws an apple and well actually she draws a vase of flowers first yes and then in the morning it's dead then she draws an apple and her friend rockwell can take the apple but it disintegrates and then she finds she can draw a door and a door can take her into another world. Tell us about that moment. So that was, uh, again, something that I thought of quite early on was to draw a door. You know, I was thinking, do you remember that AHA video from the 80s, Take On Me? Do you remember that? <laughs> when that, they sort of go into the picture and there's this whole illustrated world. So I thought, this is this is my AHA moment. And um, she draws the door and, of course, that takes her into this whole illustrated city. And then that's when the real fun began for me because dreaming up this this city was fabulous i love i'm a i'm a big maps person in books i love a map in a book right from the hobbit and i loved the maps i love tolkien's maps at the beginning of that uh, the way they were drawn the detail all that kind of stuff and actually the map played a big part in mapping out the adventure of my story because i drew that's another thing that i did very early on 
I, I think I wrote the first part of the book up until the point where she goes through the door. And then I spent quite a lot of time drawing this map and working out the different districts um, in the city. So you have full disclosure, I'm writing the second, I planned out all three books in this trilogy and I'm writing the second one now. So I'm getting slightly confused as to what's in book one and what's in book two at the moment. Um, but I knew early on there were going to be various portals in this city that were going to lead back to places in the real world, because I, I really like that. I like the idea that children can go to a place uh, in the real world that is is linked with this kind of the story in the in the book, a bit like, you know, platform nine and three quarters in their Harry Potter books. Um, and so I knew that in my illustrated city, there were going to be portals that went to various places in the real world. And at that point, I thought, well, these portals, lots of them need to be in art galleries, you know. So there could be a portal from the Museum of Modern Art in New York or from somewhere in Amsterdam, you know, which would lead to a bit of a kind of Van Gogh-themed, you know, land, that kind of thing. And, and that led me to think, right, there can be lots of districts in the city that are named, maybe they're named after artists who, in my story, might have visited the city. And so, you know, we had Darley Point West and we had Warholia and we you know so we have all these all these Vincent fields so I have these places that are not only are they named after these artists but they're kind of the the look and feel of the places in my mind springs from the, the these artists work and so it, it it's very quickly it was, it was one of those things the ideas sort of came tumbling out one after the other like that and I was slightly overwhelmed at all this stuff in my head so yeah I had to sort of draw the map write all these notes of these little ideas that are kind of um popping into my mind and then um and then plot the character's route through the city and sort of try and find a kind of a, a story arc kind of within there so that was probably the most enjoyable part of the whole whole process for me coming up with the the various kind of districts in this um in this illustrated city called chroma because you and, were um, playing exactly that it was like being five years old again you know earlier on i said i i was a planner and i really am a planner you know i like to get everything kind of you know, literally laid out in front of me before I start. But children don't tend to operate like that, do they? they? Just kind of write, and they just kind of let their imaginations go. And that, I think, when it came to designing the city, that's that's how I did it. I just kind of went. Whoosh. It was lovely and liberating, and it was it was such fun to do. And actually, I ended up creating a really rich world for these adventures mm -hmm. to happen in. We'll just tell listeners that she goes through the door. She's hoping to find her father. I mean, that's yeah. part of the the quest that she's going on. And yes. the place that she ends up to begin with is uh, somewhere called North Draw, and everything yep. is white like snow. In some ways, that's also reminiscent of another story, going through a wardrobe door into a land. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love points of connection. Points of reference, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's yeah. a lamppost in Narnia, and you have this signpost. A signpost, oh, wow, it really is. There really is a lot of parallels, but they you know maybe it's, it's an homage. It's wonderful because, in a sense, there is also another parallel because the reason that this world is so white yeah. is because you have your equivalent of a white witch who's a white mayor, yes, who wants yes. to wipe color from this land, yes, Mr. White, and he's called Mr. White, yes. So, this city. This city is a is a circle and all the districts are kind of like segments of this circle and they lead to this centre point. And at the centre of this city, well, there's two things at the centre. There's a huge white spire that's kind of 500 metres tall, this tower, perfectly white with kind of these windows that spiral around it. But around that tower, there is um, something called the Rainbow Lake, which is, as you would imagine, is a lake 
full of rainbow colored water so like if you imagine a you know a multicolored running track running around this lake and I, I quite early on after I'd had the idea of like all these you know maybe the great artists of the past had somehow find, found their way to chroma um and they had all I thought right what would be great is if they had all swum in the rainbow lake and the rainbow lake somehow imbued this amazing creativity upon these people so that when they went back to the real world they were able to create these amazing works of art that we all know and love and so again I really like that mixing of reality and actual history with this kind of fantasy world I created and I really like the metaphor of swimming in the rainbow lake you know I or he's had a swim in the rainbow lake today you know they work you know and it just it just kind of seemed to work and then then I thought right so we obviously we needed a baddie in this story and what would the baddie's motivation be well to destroy the world of all its creativity of course and the the physical manifestation of that was taking this amazing artistic beautiful colorful city and whitewashing it so that was the kind of visual metaphor that I've um I've used for it and yes when Peanut first turns up in Chroma she finds herself in the in the first district of Chroma to be monoed as I call it and um yeah and it's quite a kind of desolate bleak place when she first turns up Mm-hmm. But then she does get to explore other areas which have yet to be monoed. So um, we, we do get plenty of that lovely, colourful creativity later on in the story. Brilliant. One of the things that I really liked uh, as well in the story is to begin with, you might feel that you're being set up to see art and technology as polar opposites of each other. But as we go through this story, we realise, I mean, there's a moment that reminds me a bit of, Leonardo da Vinci and his flying machines because here's your ultimate polymath (laughs) and you're not saying that they're pulling in opposite directions at all are you? Quite the opposite really you know um, I think it was well it's funny you should mention Leonardo da Vinci actually because uh, oh maybe I shouldn't say this but Peanut's brother is called Leo and that's quite definite actually because I did want to to allude to the fact that these two Mm. things are totally interdependent Um, and I think it was Einstein that said the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It's the, it's the source of all true art and science. And I, and I think I think that's true. And it's, it's all about so it's, it's creativity, isn't it? There's as much creativity in maths as there is in painting a picture or, you know, writing a play. You know, without that spark of creativity, nothing really works. And so, yeah, I did want to very much at the beginning of the story. Um, I set it. Uh, you're right. They're set up kind of at opposite ends of the playing field. But yeah, hopefully, certainly throughout all three of the books, yeah, we'll be realised that they're totally and utterly interdependent. You know, do you know what I did A level. I did A level art, but I also did A level pure maths with statistics. And um, so, in my previous job, especially, which was I was an art director on um, the Observer newspaper and loads of magazines, I would say that the maths element was essential when you're designing things. You know, just in terms of proportion and you know. Oh, there's so many times. So many times, I sort of I fell back on my maths knowledge, and I and I think that's the thing I kind of want, wanted to get across, especially in the middle of all this kind of STEM versus the arts mm. um, debate that's kind of going on at the moment from both sides. Really, you know, they're totally in, interdependent. Leo, you've already mentioned he's into something called theoretical maths, yeah. coming up with the right questions, not just finding the answers. Do you know what? When I did A level maths, that was a big. That was a that was a major part of it because up until then, GCSE maths I found quite quite easy, really, because you just have to find this one answer and you either got it or you made a mistake somewhere early on and you didn't get it. 
but uh, A-level maths, and I can't even imagine what it's like to do kind of maths, further maths or degree level maths, but A-level maths, so much of it is um, the- theoretical, proving or disproving hypotheses and having an answer and coming up with a question. I mean, it's quite mind-bending, but um, mm. yeah, so that's why, uh, that's why I wanted Leo to, to have that background. So my question is whether Leo might feature a little bit more in books two and three. That would be telling, wouldn't it? But yes. <laughs> <laughs> Leo, Leo has got quite a major part to play in the story eventually I will say I will say that much to you okay I won't push yeah. any further on that no. <laughs> I tell you what it's such an enjoyable read and it's one where you actually learn quite a lot about all sorts of things about maths about science and about art but you're not really aware of it because you're so absorbed in the quest and you know getting rid of the villains and hoping that Peanut's going to find her father. And that's what drives you. It's such a great read and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Rob. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you so much for uh, your your lovely, kind words. And thanks so much for having me again on on the podcast. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.